Okay, welcome to another podcast. This one is going to be answering questions. I put a question box up on my Instagram and I got a lot of responses, so I'm not going to be able to get through them all, but thanks for answering if you did. And if I don't get to your question, then I'll definitely do another one of these in the near future and hopefully we can get it done then. So I'm going to start off with how do we differentiate quality research from BS with so much info out there? One huge difficulty I'm having is knowing whether a study was correctly done, how reliable it is, or even how to apply it to me and my athletes. It just takes practice is the answer. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that you can look at with a study that will help you to understand where to put it into context. And I think one of the most important things is that On the application side, often studies don't tell us what to do with an individual. They answer some questions around what might be a better path to go down, or they give us a piece of the puzzle that will help us to apply to various situations. But you're never ever going to be able to take something directly out of a study and necessarily apply it to a person in practice as an individual. And that's for a variety of reasons, but you can kind of see studies as you know, sort of pieces in a puzzle. I sometimes like to use this analogy where uh, if you're sort of looking at a a paint by numbers kind of picture and there might be thousands of these sort of paint by numbers and, you know, tells you to paint green on all of the odd numbers or something like that. A study is essentially painting in one of those little boxes for us. And so slowly and slowly and slowly over time, the picture starts to actually become more obvious as to what it is, but it takes quite a bit of evidence to show that picture uh, as something that's recognizable and usable for us. So I would say that for, for research specifically, I have some emails and some resources called how to read a scientific paper. I'd really recommend having a look at that. I'll actually link to the original paper that I based those posts off of in the description of this podcast. And that'll give you an idea about where to start, but then it just takes a lot of practice to get good at it. It's really tough. Uh, So I would recommend doing that and I would recommend subscribing to some kind of research review where they sort of do that professionally. I think MASS, M-A-S-S is probably the best one. Okay, next question. How does periodization work? Doing the same weight feels heavier after a deload than it feels on the end of the previous cycle. Well, to answer the second part first, If a weight feels heavier after a deload, then I would say that either you haven't really dissipated that fatigue correctly, or you've simply lost that peak, right? So let's say we're peaking for a powerlifting meet or something like that. The idea is that at the end of our training phase, which might be 12 weeks or something like that, we're in a position where we are at our strongest, but those adaptations won't stick around forever and our fitness will drop to some degree meaning that you're not going to be able to walk in and potentially lift a PR any day of the week. It means that we've specifically tried to peak your fitness to the point where it's going to happen on a platform on a specific day. So I would say that it's not a case of necessarily trying to be at your strongest at any given time. It's a case of like it's going to happen at specific times and you do lose fitness um, at some point. But periodization is essentially just a way of arranging your training cycles. Um, And so we we might be trying to target specific aspects of our performance. To give an example with powerlifting, you might find that sometimes you want to lift heavier weights that you get good at lifting heavy weights. Sometimes you want to do higher rep work so that you can build more muscle. And sometimes you may even want to do some conditioning work so that you can tolerate higher training volumes. Now, each 
training phase might have a different focus and that's essentially where periodization comes in. So it's just manipulation of those training variables to try and get some kind of specific outcome that ultimately contributes to your overall goal. Next question, is there any research suggesting what the optimal surplus range is for muscle building? And I got a ton of muscle building questions in the Instagram question box. I did a podcast on this already called, let me just think for a second, do you really need to be in a surplus to grow muscle or something along those lines? I'd really recommend looking at that. So for the 15 or 20 or so questions I got around how big a surplus needs to be or the optimal rate of gaining muscle or gaining weight, definitely look at that podcast because I'll explore it in a lot more detail in that one. So have a look at that. Next question is a little specific, but it might be interesting anyway. So when you first qualify as a PT, do you think it's necessary to spend a degree of time in a commercial gym working with general population clients, even if that isn't your long-term goal? For context, I'm doing my current course and continuing to learn so that I can help more people moving forwards. But my goal is ultimately to share that knowledge and try to help people through content as opposed to specifically taking on clients, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I totally get what you're coming on from with that. But it's one of those things where if you want to try and help people, I think you have to understand them. You know, so you might be in a position where the type of person you want to help is very familiar to you because maybe it's you. <laughs> a lot of people get into this, uh, this industry and create content basically helping past versions of themselves or people very much like them. And I think that's a really powerful thing. It's, it's quite good because you, you recognize the problems and the, the thought processes and the mindset and all that sort of stuff. So that can be really useful. And in that case, you might not have to work with a huge variety of people to really make content that helps people solve those problems. But I also think that it's really helpful to actually work with a variety of people because then you start to recognize certain patterns and certain problems. And it's, it's sort of at a point where, you know, I've been doing this since 2008. And although I'm not a, you know, woman in her 40s with a specific sort of look she's going for, I can really empathize with that person and I can understand a lot of their problems because I've just trained so many people and spoken to so many people in that situation that I've obviously learned how to deal with that. And you, you see certain patterns and archetypes and this sort of stuff pop up and it means your problem solving is a lot more efficient. So I guess long story short, I don't think it would hurt for sure, but I also think it kind of depends on how well you know the people that you are looking to help. And you might know them quite well because they might be your friends, family, or even yourself. So hopefully that gives you a little bit more of an idea. Okay, next question. Specifically, how detrimental to muscle mass is not reaching your protein target? So it's one of the major signals for muscle growth. So to explain this in a little bit more depth, there's a bunch of signals that converge to signal for muscle growth. So we have some nutritional stuff, we have some training stuff, and all of those kind of combine. So at any given moment throughout the day, we are having some muscle breakdown, some muscle protein synthesis, and the sum of those two determines whether we actually grow any new muscle or not. We call that net muscle protein synthesis. Now that is dependent on a bunch of stuff. So obviously training provides some signals to the muscle to grow. Eating protein provides signal to the muscle to grow. Having enough energy availability signals muscle to grow. And so we don't have to have all of those signals there necessarily to grow muscle or to at least maintain our muscle mass. So for example, if we're in a deficit, 
We don't have energy availability to build a whole lot of new muscle, but if we keep our training up and we keep enough protein in our diet, then we can certainly maintain our muscle mass. The problem comes is if you're not eating enough protein, that's physically what the muscle is made out of. So protein is made up of amino acids, and those amino acids are like the bricks that build protein structures. And we use those amino acids to build our muscles. So if we're not getting enough of that, then we're not going to build much muscle. And if we're in a deficit, we now have two of the major signals for promoting muscle protein synthesis out of the picture. We have insufficient amino acids and we have insufficient energy, meaning that there's not a whole lot there to tell the body to keep muscle mass around. We just have the training stimulus really. So it's pretty important that we hit our minimum protein targets when we are in a deficit. Um, now, if you were off your protein target for a few days, it's probably not gonna have a hugely measurable effect. But again, I think if you're in a deficit and you're like barely squeaking by on protein, you should probably rethink the way your diet is set up. Now, there was another question around how much protein is too much. I know there isn't much benefit once you go over around 2.2 grams per kilo, but is there any harm? The answer is no. And there's been studies that have actually used up to 4.4 grams per kilo, which is a huge amount. Like they actually had several dropouts in those studies because the people just couldn't keep up with the sheer amount of protein they had to eat. So most of those people were eating three to 400 grams of protein a day and using multiple shakes to do that. So the only real issue with this is that it starts to impinge on your ability to get in an adequate amount of certain foods. So if you have a lot of protein in your diet, it necessarily means that you're kind of cutting down on the amount of carbs that you're eating. And firstly, the just the pure carbohydrate is really, really helpful for fueling exercise performance and that kind of thing. But also the foods that tend to contain carbohydrates will have other things like fiber and phytonutrients and various other vitamins and minerals in them. And so if you are displacing those foods by simply eating a heap of protein, then you could start to run into issues. So I think that's really the main issue when it comes to eating a lot of protein. Okay, next question. Uh, summary of research done on the impacts of hormonal birth control versus natural on gains. The research is all over the place, unfortunately, and the reason why is because it's an extremely complex topic. So to give a little bit of context to this, we have obviously the main hormones involved, estrogen and progesterone. We then have various receptors for estrogen and progesterone. We also have various forms of the hormones themselves, but let's kind of ignore that for now. We then have different receptor densities on different tissues. So you might have more progesterone receptors on some compared to others. And then this fluctuates on a day-by-day -day basis. And, and if you're trying to do research uh, you know, in a, in a lab and you have a bunch of women come in, because their progesterone and estrogen are going to vary day-to-day, -day, it means that you're not really gonna get that much of a true representation of what's going on throughout the entire menstrual cycle, right? So it's very difficult to study the effects of these hormones. But when we go on to hormonal birth control, what's happening is that we are essentially trying to replace some of the natural hormones with synthetic versions of them. And we're playing around with the body's ability to sort of prepare. And so the idea is that we're now introducing something that is a little bit different to our natural hormones, but it kind of disrupts that cycle. And we still have these issues of like, how much receptor density do we have? What are the natural hormone levels of the person involved? What's the release rate of the actual um, products that you're using, the hormonal birth control, they all have a sort of different release pattern. 
They have different combinations of hormones, different doses of hormones. And so it's really, really complex. And when you're trying to apply that to someone's individual physiology, I think it's just really hard to do. It's very difficult to predict. In general, progestin, which is a synthetic form of progesterone, progestin-based birth control is quite common and it generally has negative effects on recovery. I really don't want this to be like, oh no, progesterone is bad uh, because it's not. But I would say in general, if you're looking at it from a mechanistic perspective, then for most people having an increase in a synthetic progesterone is probably not going to be conducive to the absolute best gains. Now, for a lot of people, they may notice no difference and they may not have a significant clinical impact. But from a mechanistic point of view, it makes sense to me that having more progesterone around, specifically progestin, the synthetic version, is probably not going to be conducive to your absolute best gains. But again, it's really going to come down to the individual. And uh, I think if you're concerned about it, it's worth talking to your doctor um, because it's going to have an individual impact. Of course, you know, just to add to that, there has to be a massive sort of personal choice made based on the convenience and and all that sort of stuff as well you know so some people might feel a little guilty for using a hormonal birth control because of you know the hormonal changes that occur you know but that has to be balanced against uh what works best for you uh next question what are your thoughts on non-diet or health at every size approach does it have a place i think it absolutely does i would say health at every size or haze for short is often completely misunderstood. It doesn't mean that someone who is overweight or obese is just as healthy as someone who is in a normal BMI range, for example. That's not what that movement is about. And I think a lot of people confuse that. The focus of Haze is to focus on health behaviors that are not distinctly tied to weight. So you may still lose weight as a result of these behaviors and being in a healthy BMI range is still kind of the goal, but it's not explicitly weight focused or tied to your weight. So instead of being like, well, I want to eat in a calorie deficit to lose weight, the focus of a haze approach might be something like, I want to eat an appropriate energy balance, right? I want to fuel my body so that it can perform well, but I don't want to overeat and feel uncomfortable. Something along those lines, right? So it's it's much more focused on behaviors that promote health, which we can all engage in. It might be something as simple as moving more, um, engaging in physical activity three times a week, something like that, as opposed to specifically losing weight or trying to be in a calorie deficit for the purpose of changing your appearance or something like that. So it's just health focused. And so in that sense, of course, I think it's a super, super good way of approaching things. Now, these sort of non-diet approaches, I do think that the the sort of intuitive eating movement, which is again, a little bit misappropriated sometimes in terms of how, how that term is used. Intuitive eating is actually a methodology set forth by a couple of dietitians in a book called intuitive eating. So I would look into that, but they basically have sort of 10 key principles that, that are in there. I won't go through them all, but it's probably worth looking at. I do think that some of them are very, very helpful. So a lot of it is around um, challenging this sort of idea of good and bad foods, uh, honoring you know your your feelings, your biological urges to eat. So just learning to recognize when you're truly hungry, eating to satiation and not beyond that, that kind of thing. And so I think that those ideas are really, really helpful and can be used 
in conjunction with any approach really, like even if you're tracking macros with the express purpose of trying to lose weight, you can still implement some of those ideas. Uh, and so I think it's a very handy tool to have for all of us. Next question, is fiber really important in the overall diet, not just for fat loss? Yes, it is. It uh, has a variety of functions such as providing food for our gut bacteria, and it's also protective against colorectal cancer. So it is something that is healthy beyond just controlling weight, it can also have effects on things like blood glucose and that sort of thing. So I think that uh, it shouldn't be ignored. As far as how much fiber to get, I think a good starting point is around 10 to 15 grams per 1000 calories in your diet. So for most people, that's gonna be between 20 and 40 grams a day, but it is a little bit individual. Next question, how to help a female who is on 800 calories and weighs 100 kilos, but wants to lose 25 kilos? Okay, uh, I highly doubt that anybody is on 800 calories and weighing 100 kilos unless they're currently losing weight at a significant rate. So that's the first thing to look at, I would say. It may be that on some days this person is genuinely eating 800 calories and on other days they maybe aren't, so they're just inconsistent. Or it may be that they are misreporting and that might not be a, a conscious thing. It might not be something that they're doing on purpose. It might just be that they don't really understand how to actually measure and eat their calories or they're forgetting to log food or something like that. So I think that's the first thing to just do a basic audit and make sure that this person knows how to actually track food properly, that they uh, understand their caloric needs are actually much greater than 800 kilos, uh, 800 calories. And I would say that in this case, someone who weighs 100 and would like to lose 25 kilos is probably a case of making smaller changes first. I would think that that's generally a little bit more efficacious in my experience. So it might be, you know, going after some simple behaviors that we just discussed even, you know, getting more fiber in, being more physically active, just as a general movement kind of thing, that sort of thing. But uh, definitely 800 kilos, uh, 800 calories, sorry, at 100 kilos is really, really low. I would roughly guess that someone who is female and weighs 100 kilos would have caloric needs somewhere between like 2,500 and 3,000, depending, um, just to maintain their weight. So if they're on 800 calories, they should be losing at a significant rate already. Next question is, should we count the calories burned due to exercise in your macro count for the day? Yes, uh, this should be taken care of in your TDEE calculation. So if you've sort of used a calculator, it'll ask you how physically active you are and you can put in a value there and that will include it in your overall calorie expenditure for the day. I would highly recommend not adjusting your calories based on how much physical activity you've done for the day because it's really difficult to measure. Some devices like a Fitbit or something like that or even cardio machines will try and estimate how many calories you've burned based on your heart rate. That isn't an accurate way of doing things. So I strongly recommend not taking those into account. Instead, I would simply use a TDEE calculator, put in how, ac how uh, active you think you are, use that number, adjust it based on how quickly you're losing or gaining um, and do it that way. So it should already be included in your calculation. Next question is how do EAA supplements help us? How is it different from whey? So EAA stands for essential amino acids. They're not that different from whey. So it's basically just the amino acids that are included in the proteins in whey protein. And so in this sense, they are 
they undergo more processing, so they're more expensive, but uh, they're not more effective than something like whey protein or any other whole protein source. So just to kind of explain that a bit further, every protein is made up of amino acids. And when we take something like essential amino acid supplements, it's just the broken down amino acids that we find in foods that are rich in protein anyway. So you don't have to use them if you don't want to, you can just eat food. Next question is how to know if digestive health is impacting kilocalorie use. You're not able to eat as many calories as before. Uh, if something's coming out the other end, then <laughs> undigested, then, uh, then you haven't digested and absorbed it. Realistically, unless you have some really severe gut issues, I don't think that that's gonna be much of an issue. If you can't diet on as many calories as before, then this may be some kind of change in environment or some kind of metabolic adaptation or something along those lines. So generally speaking, the most variable part of our energy expenditure is physical activity. And most of it is subconscious. So we call this non-exercise physical activity or NEAT. And essentially, we don't have control over this. It's mostly dictated by environment. So for example, if you have an office job, your daily energy expenditure is probably gonna be quite low from physical activity. But if you work in construction or if you have a job where you stand up a lot, that sort of thing, it's gonna be much higher. Uh, you know, it includes things like gesturing and postures and how much you talk and general things like that, how much you stand up versus how much you sit, all those little things. So I would first look to sort of engineer your environment to maximize your general movement throughout the day. It's very, very unlikely that it's due to you sort of having issues with your digestive health. Uh, and if it was, I think it would be really obvious. You'd be extremely uncomfortable. Uh, next question is, I'd love to hear about the effects of being too far in a calorie deficit as an athlete, especially with regards to injuries. Okay, well, firstly, I think we should probably address energy availability. So even if you're an athlete who's eating quite a lot, you might have a lot of energy coming in, you can still have a relative energy deficiency because you're expending so many calories. So... Generally speaking, athletes will be relatively lean or trying to be relatively lean. They'll have high uh, energy output. This is especially true if you're something like an endurance athlete, for example. And for that reason, even though you might eat quite a lot, you're using a lot of energy and your energy stores in terms of body fat are pretty low. So your brain can recognize this. It can recognize that your energy availability is quite low. And that means that things like recovery from training and resistance to injury over time might be affected. So it's really important to ensure that you're not restricting yourself constantly as an athlete. I understand there might be times where you do need to undergo some restriction to maintain body weight or a certain amount of leanness. But generally speaking, when we're in a high energy flux state, in other words, we're eating a lot and also expending a lot of energy, you wanna make sure that you are actually getting in enough to fully recover. And I would try and push that as high as you can before gaining a significant amount of weight. Now, if you do get injured, then depending on the injury, you might want to actually increase the amount of food that you're taking on so that you recover well from the injury. For something like a minor muscle strain, you probably don't really need to worry about it. But if you have an issue where you have like stress fractures or a broken bone or a significant muscle tear, then it's an energy energetically intensive process to repair that. And I would strongly recommend not reducing your caloric intake while that heals. 
lot of people are tempted to do that so that they don't gain body fat, but it might actually hurt your ability to recover, especially in the case of more serious injuries, like maybe if you're having surgery or have a broken bone or something like that. So certainly your ability to recover is affected if you aren't eating enough as an athlete. And but just bear in mind that your food intake might be quite high, but you might still have some kind of relative energy deficiency. Next question is, if you had to pick an exercise to slim the legs, what would it be? Well, I would probably just do a ton of cardio on the legs because the adaptations there will be conducive to having reduced muscle size. If you're asking for exercises that might make your legs look leaner, then I probably wouldn't necessarily do that because if you have a little bit more muscle mass, the way the body fat distributes over your muscles will make you look leaner essentially, even though you might have the same amount of body fat. So it's a combination of losing fat and having a reasonable amount of muscle for that fat to sort of distribute itself over. But if you have bulky legs, like they're muscly, and you want to reduce the muscly look of them, then I would say just train them a little less with weights and train them a little more with sort of more endurance type exercise like running or something along those lines. Okay, I think we might wrap up with one more question here. I've only done about maybe a third of them, so I'm really sorry if I haven't gotten to your question. Please keep it for next time and I'll do my best to answer it. Uh, The last question for today, studying a PhD and training, I'm struggling with the diet and being able to feed both the brain and the body. Okay, so I think this maybe needs a little bit more context, but I'll give some general advice here. Firstly is that you have to kind of have a priority at some point, like at some point being lean and training hard might not be conducive to other things in your life, like performing well at work or studying. I think if you're doing a PhD, you're obviously got you know a lot going on, very busy, probably fairly stressed. I imagine sleep habits might be a bit tough depending on what you're studying and what the lab requirements are and that kind of thing with a PhD. Um, you know, so you have to really take that into account and tailor your training accordingly. Like there's no point trying to make the best gains of your life when you're doing a PhD and you're maybe getting like five hours of sleep some nights and you're unable to eat regularly and you feel a little bit stressed out and it's difficult to get in regular meals. You know, that's not going to be a period that is particularly reducive to conducive to recovery and therefore trying to train really hard during that time is probably not a good idea. Again, this kind of comes down to this, you know, energy availability thing. We kind of want to make sure that we're getting in enough recovery so that you can perform mentally and sort of secondarily, we're looking at at then, you know, building muscle and, and keeping you lean and all that sort of stuff. So I would just consider what is required for you to perform well with your PhD work. And sometimes that might mean prioritizing like getting in some sleep or having a day off instead of training really, really hard. And it may be that your training for now is just something that's a little more on the back burner. And you always have an opportunity later on to really get after that. Or maybe you have, you know, three months where you get a little bit of a lighter workload and then you can push it a bit harder then because your recovery capacity is higher. I think this is a big mistake that a lot of people make is not taking into account some of the lifestyle factors that are going to affect their recovery. And so they want to train really hard. But if you're really looking to make gains, we're trying to provide a stimulus and recover from it so that we can adapt. And that sometimes means training, pulling back a little bit on training, if anything. You know, I've got a lot of clients who come to me and they, they're sort of used to doing a ton of training volume and they're scared to do less. They've got the desire to work hard and to do more, 
But by pulling it back and making sure that their recovery is on point, we often get better results out of that. And that's just something that you have to go through and audit yourself. Like for some people, they might be totally cool with like training more because they enjoy it and they like that feeling and it's a feeling of release for them or whatever. And they're okay with maybe training a little too hard and not recovering well enough. But it sounds like in your case, you're maybe struggling a little bit. So it might be a case of just trying to work proactively on maximizing recovery. And part of that is managing training volume and that kind of thing. You know, so I, I, in your position, I would look for the lowest hanging fruit. It may be like, you know, just really being on top of bedtimes or something like that and getting an extra half hour or an hour of sleep a day. It might be just chopping down your training volume by a little bit, uh, whatever, you know. So just kind of look for those little areas where you can get a bit of a return on maximizing your recovery and just look at what the priority is for right now knowing that you can always sort of get after your training a little bit more later on when your PhD work is not so intense. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening today, everybody. I will definitely do another one of these. Please feel free to give me a rating and share this around if you enjoyed it. And otherwise, I'll catch you in the next one. Cheers.